This is Westside Barbell with strength and conditioning legend, Louis Simmons. Westsidebarbell.com, the strongest website in the world. Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today's topic that we're going to discuss is the importance of monitoring volume and intensity in training. Lou, I'd like to start off um, about when you started to regulate uh, monitoring uh, volume and intensity at Westside. Well, Tom, actually 13 years ago with Dave Hoff when he came here as a young boy at 15 years old, I decided to follow his career. I could see he had quite a career in front of him, hopefully, which he did. And from the time of 15 years old, he could squat 400 pounds. At 19 years old, he squatted 1,000 pounds. So I actually wrote a program that's called The Plan from 400 to 1,000. But at that point, I started monitoring volume, um, percentages, um, and a number of lifts in one workout plus band tension. And I discovered a lot of things. And by the way, Tom, we've had five people hold all-time world records in the squat. Chuck Vogelpohl was the greatest all-time pound-for-pound squatter in the world, and Dave Hoff took over from him in the very same gym here at Westside. Um, in the women's side, we've held records at world records. We hold world records at 123 at 530, 672 at 148, 775 at 165 for female and 770. Also, Laura Phelps is the greatest female squatter of all time, along with Dave. So we know a lot about squatting. And as you well know, Tom, power me squat start with the squat. The squat goes good, the meats go good. Squat goes bad, the meat goes bad. So we pay a lot of attention to the volume there. And what I found through leading through the circumax phases later on, it controls all of all three lifts where you don't have a central nervous system breakdown. Um, we first discovered that um, a 400-pound squatter would train at 50, 55, and 60% on a three-week wave using 25% band tension. If you add this up for um, 24 lifts, 12 doubles, or you can uh, roughly this, and then 12 doubles, and then 10 doubles at the 60%, it's, uh, the volume is 4,800 pounds on the first week. It would jump slightly the second, and then back to 48 on the third. So I avoid combination slightly by letting volume go steady in the first week up and then back down. And if you add this up, it's basically um, 4,800 pounds. Now, I'm going to give you a couple more examples. For every 50 pounds you go up in the squat, the volume goes up 600 pounds. This is all math. It goes to 54 if, if you calculate those weights. Let, let's just go from 4 to 8 uh, to simplify it. And um, an 800-pound squatter would train twice what a 400. 400, 440, 480, 12 double, 12 double, 10 double. Uh, the 24, 24, and 20 lifts with the 25% band tension. Um, and um, so that volume is 9,600 pounds. It's actually twice as much. To squat twice as much, you have to do twice the volume. It's very important for the bar speed to be maintain closely roughly about 0.8 meters per second on the average. So you're saying the, the higher the level or the higher the weight you go up, the more volume? is required to maintain it? It has to. Like in sports, um, many sports enthusiasts come here, and if you have a rugby team and you want them to squat four or 500 pounds, um, I mean, that's all they have to do. You just have to maintain these uh, squat poundages, and you have to, you're have you producing the force to squat 400 pounds. Force equals mass times acceleration. If I have a youngster and he can squat 400 for one rep, but I haven't do the submaximum weight for maximum acceleration, he's actually getting 24 exertions with the 400 pounds of force. Much more... Uh, effective than just squatting at one time plus it's much safer and it's more advantageous to sport where did you uh, come up with the sets and reps 
uh, and then the percentages to maintain the volume? I carry through Premlin's chart, A.S. Premlin, <coughs> Management of the Weightlifting, and many several other books and graphs that I have throughout the years. And he based it off his science off 1,000 highly skilled um, Olympic weightlifters and track and field enthusiasts in Europe. And uh, so I, I went by what he said. And what I did, and also uh, other charts show that the greatest weightlifter, 780 cases of some of the high qualified weightlifters from overseas, 50% of their training was between 75, 80, and 85%, with the average weight of 80, which is exactly how the Chinese change, train, and that's how we do it. The difference is we use accommodating resistance, so 50, 55, 60, with 25 on top, turns into 75, 80, and 85. We use accommodating resistance, of course, for accommodating resistance and also overspeed eccentrics. Um, so this is dynamic effort we're going through for a squat. Yes. And you said for a 400-pound squatter, it's week one, two, three, roughly about 4,800 pounds week one. And yes. Goes up a little bit. Um, that's your main movement. From there, how would you progress that into the rest of the workout? Uh, many people ask me how how to keep them overtraining or undertraining. Everyone overtrains and overtrains. The strongest guy in the gym gets stronger. Everyone else falls on the wayside. I've seen this for years and years and years. Well, how do we monitor this? Uh, one, reverse hypers. Um, I mean, reverse hypers saved my lifting career and many, many since then in 1973 when I came up and started doing the exercise in 75. I take no credit for inventing it. I'm sure someone overseas did. But what we've discovered is the volume for reverse hypers has to be four times that of the squat. So a 400-pound squatter just roughly would be 20,000 pounds of reverse hypers. Um, this attacks the hamstrings, glutes, hips, low back, spinal rectors. And at the same time, it's traction. So you're doing an enormous amount of work uh, directly where the squat is focused, but with traction at the same time. Um, and this, this continues. Um, like if you... Um, and basically half the weight of your squat, like a former squatter, you use 200 pounds. Um, a 500 squatter will use 250. Um, when I was squatting in the mid-9, you know, 920 easy, I, I used 480. Chuck Vogelbull did the same. So, and you go right up to a 1,000-pound squat, he would use 500 pounds, and um, the volume would be roughly 60,000 pounds. So that's a lot of reps. It sounds like a lot of reps, but your lower back's comprised of many ligaments and tendons. Um, you, if you get a lower back injury, it seldom ever bleeds. You tear muscles, they bleed. Lower backs don't. So you need an enormous amount of stimulation in the lower back to, to fulfill the, the need to thicken ligaments and tendons. And that's why the high repetitions come in. First, I experimented with women. We always did 10 reps per set in reverse hyper, normally about 40 reps. So I had some girls go from 10 to 30, and their list went up enormously. At that point, then I, I've got the male counterparts in the gym to do the same, and we basically do 20, 25 a set. And, uh, and again, the list went up an uh, amazing amount. And that's how I monitor the low back, because everyone always wants to train overtrain the lower back or undertrain it. This monitors that fact. And um, if you want to go on to more restoration. I'd like to just yeah, uh, yeah. go on the hyper. Did you ever notice uh, a lack or dip in performance if someone had uh, laid off the volume in reverse hyper? Yes, Tom, it's a good point. Years ago, Matt Dimmo, you know, Matt was like a son to me, and Matt was extremely strong. He was the first world record squad. He squatted 1,010 about 1985. It lasted for years. Uh, hardly any gear at all. When Matt would come in, you know, I had to, if he was doing reverse hypers, his squat and deadlift was way up. If I was uh, slack and not paying attention, he would sneak around, not do them, and I'd have to you know, try to get him and manhandle him and make him do them, and then his list would take off again. I've, I've seen this repeatedly, even up to today, with just um, 
pro lifters in my gym, which is as low as you're going to get up to the monster top five all-time totals. Uh, the more reverse hypers, the stronger they are. There's a second exercise I'd like to introduce to, um, because if you want to succeed, um, Leonard Zasatinsky years ago was Olympic champion in 1960 and 64. His, um, he was undefeated, no one could beat him, but his lift stagnated. And at that point, they couldn't understand why, because he had no injuries, and it seemed like he had no mental problems. So they got into his books, his logs, and they noticed that the average percent of his training went down slightly, and the volume went down slightly. So they decided to push it back where it was. He continued to break records. So the key is the more volume a human can do and recover, the stronger he'll be. So how, how do we gain recovery and becoming monstrously strong? We live in a bell squat machine. We do it many ways. We walk in a bell squat machine in place with very, very heavy weights. As you well, Tom, you've seen the machine break. Mm -hmm. Probably approximately 2,000 pounds was on the device when it broke. Um, we walk in there. Um, we do bell squatting in there. Uh, we do regular squatting in there. We do combination squat with a belt and a deadlift in there. And it just blows up the glutes. And, you know, isometrics will function 15 degrees either direction. Um vertically or laterally so we do a lot of the stand-up lockouts where most people can't lock out you know a lot of people miss the death at the top they can't get their glutes to come through so we do enormous amount of work at the top and that radiates down 15 degrees um we have had a 925 deadlifter we've had a 915 a 900 and a 900 and they live in the bell squats and that, that our top five average in the deadlift is 890 and the top 10 is 866 and um, how do we do this with no lower back injuries or hamstring or posterior chain injuries? We, I don't even, my people, I, I don't, rec do you recall me even saying they're sore? Um, but we can do this monstrous amount of work while everyone else is always injured, can't even get to me. And so there's two processes that we use for the high volume as well as other restoration methods. Um, one is um, we use a um, hip quad machine that opens up the hips and stretches out the psoas. Everyone needs this because as you get stronger, you see the uh, internal rotation and um, the cell has no opposing muscle, so it ends up pulling you forward, tightening up your lower back, which then causes hamstring injuries, which we don't have. A second device, you just basically use a small med ball and a small of her back and do setups. That opens up the psoas as well. So we do an enormous amount of exercises like that. So the reverse hyper and the bell squat is two of the mainstays. And going on with this, uh, I was actually, I believe, strongest in my lifting career, over 50 years old. I did lots of power walking. I used extremely heavy weights on Monday. I would go 60 yards. Um, the most I ever pulled, I wasn't that great at this for some reason. Maybe because I was short, I pulled 450, 100 feet. But I normally pull, you know, uh, close to 400 in, in six to eight sets with um, of, of 100, 180 feet. And then on, so then I'd reduce the weight on Wednesday for strength endurance. And I would normally do about 10 to 12 sets there. And on Friday, I would reduce it again. Uh, where I would use maybe just two plates, and this would work as for restoration, but for me it was a warm-up before I squatted. I, I liked, that's how I like to warm up. And so it was a very valuable tool for me. Um, that's, how, that's how we use GPP to raise our work capacity for the squat without overtraining, and, um, um, and as well as a wheelbarrow and walking with weight vests and pulling sleds and wheelbarrows and accessory of other exercises. How do you uh, not compare or differentiate between the intensities you do for your main movement, just say for the dynamic squats, compared to the intensities of the movement you do for um, for accessory work, is there a difference? 
Um, Tom, as you all know, you see many studies. You know, you were when you were in Ireland, you see many case studies on working on injuries and prevention, and they always did it with single joint movement. So uh, it's much safer. They normally won't allow a student to do a thesis on anything but single joint. Well, that told me, yes, it's safe, but it's productive. Well, one way it is because that's why reverse hypers um, and inverse curls, we work on single muscles. As we, I try to isolate them as much as possible. It is not bodybuilding, it is hyperpathy training. And we do it by single joint. If you do high rep deadlifts with heavy weights, you're bound to get hurt. You squat, the weakest muscle is going to wear out, you're going to get hurt. Good morning is the very same thing. And I broke my back doing good mornings with doing high reps with a very heavy weight. So what we do, we limit that chance of injury by using single joint. Um, hamstring curls, um, you know, inverse curl, glute ham raise, um, band curls. All these exercises isolate a muscle. Uh, like if we realize your glutes are maybe... 20% behind your hamstrings, then we're going to push up the glutes. Once we get the glutes ahead of the hams, then we got to bring the hams up. So it's an ever-ending, constant keeping up process. Uh, that's what the conscious system is, rotating. Um, years ago, you know, um, <clears throat> a football coach is here, won four Super Bowl rings, and he told me that um, he's talking to um, a strength coach from the old Soviet Union in New York, and he says, what do I do after a ball game with my players? He was with the Giants. And he said... Um, Work their, work their legs. So he goes, he writes it down. He said, what do I do Tuesday? He says, work their legs. So he wrote that down. I said, what do I do Wednesday? He said, work their legs. He said, come on, coach. What do you mean? What do you mean? And he looked at it like he was nuts. And he goes, all you have to do is change exercise. We were pointing this out last night to some track coaches, as you well know. Mm -hmm. And so we just merely rotate small exercises so you have constant stimulus. We push as hard as possible. And at that point, for myself, uh, within seven days to no more than 10, I have to squish these small exercises. But the, but I put maximum work into them, repetition, near failure for several sets. Um, Deco, you talk about, uses the same process over in the old Soviet Union. Many Russians did the same. That's what the repetition and failure method means, working the very last muscle fibers in the body. And what reps work? The very last reps. So you have to go to near failure. I like near failure. Instead of complete failure, so I, I can recover slightly faster and do three or four sets instead of maybe one or two. And I think a, a big thing to point out is this is where the athlete, and especially if you're a coach, has to be honest with you and know their body. If you're going to uh, uh, up the volume of something, it, has, it must go by your weakest and down. You can't keep training what you're strong at. It doesn't matter. That's right. And here, I, I've noticed a lot of everyone here, they go from the first weakest to the second weakest and vice versa all the way down. And at the end... Reverse hypers and ab exercises, they're not counted because they're done every day. That's how important they are. Yes, I would never count an ab exercise, and we live on abs. Uh, you, you see how much abs I do, Tom? I probably do an hour of abs a week if you want to count the time with repetitions fully. So, yeah, you never even count them. It's just something you have to do. Um, talking about single joints, exercises, Louis, um, here during my time at Westside, I see many athletes performing a lot of band curls, banded curls. Uh, can you tell me why are they so important? How many times a week do you perform banded curls? We either do banded curls or um, ankle weight curls, lying down, or standing leg curls, of course, standing up continuously because high repetitions for the ligaments and tendons. Um, the band curls, we do them very fast where we have a where we preload the tendon and let the knee slide up and pull back but, you know, very fast, very jerky action. Um, it, it thickens up ligaments and tendons, and that's why we don't have these injuries. Everyone has soft tissue injuries. Um, it's common knowledge that soft tissue, ligaments and tendons, and so forth, doesn't go through the rate of, of muscle. But 
That doesn't say if you trained them, they would. So we put, spent hours of training the ligaments and tendons, and that's why these people don't have any injury, no downtime. And it's a sin here if someone cannot go to a meet. If we train for a meet and a guy goes, I'm not ready for the meet, it's a sin. It has to be mental. It cannot be physical. So that's why we do um, so many leg curls and um, you know, of all different varieties. And again, just rotate them. That's what the key is. Same thing with any other exercise. Before we go comparing the volumes from uh, dynamic to max effort, what is the intensity of a dynamic effort squat? Is it high intensity, medium intensity, moderate? It's, it's, it's would be intermediate. It's 75 to 85 with a combination of band and, um, and uh, weight. Okay. Yes. A lot of people use the, the name high intensity training drove me crazy for years. Hit, high intensity. It's not. It's low intensity, folks. The, rep, the, the percent of a one rep max is very low and the reps are very high. They have it backwards. I mean, if you're going to do something, can you please understand uh, the correct name of it and understand you're doing low intensity training, not high intensity. And you're training, you're training to be an endurance athlete. As we see many, many times, people train absolutely incorrectly, Tommy. Um, people like Charlie Francis bring this up and Dan Path and many, many others. And we, uh, and we and do cool. And we all come to the same conclusion and we've never met. And they all monitor volume hugely. Yes, you have to monitor it. That's right. You know, like you were talking about the hypers and everything. Um, and you, you brought up a very good point, Tom, that you want to train whatever your weakest at, train first. Because you get the, you take the biggest piece of the pie on where you really need it. That's why we don't have muscle imbalances. You you know, you, you can't have muscle imbalances, you're going to get hurt. So that's why we have very, very, very few injuries. I had enough for 30 years ago to make up for everybody in the gym. And I started doing the Soviet system in 1982. I remember uh, a friend of ours, Jason Goss, he's a strength coach and uh, still a lot of equipment. He always said, um, it drove him nuts when people said, uh, these guys are quad dominant. They're not quad dominant, they're hamstring weak. And that's exactly. I had a female lifter here years ago, Laura Dodd. First she was track at Ohio State, ran for Athletes West, then became world record holder in the squat back in the 90s in powerlifting. And um, her hamstring quad ratio was 60 hamstring, 40 quad. It's the highest ever tested at Ohio State and maybe highest tested almost anywhere except maybe for Jamaica or back in the old, some of the Soviet countries. But no one, Charles Potterkin had heard of 51-49 ratio. I, I want to bring up another point, Tommy, about uh, intent, intensities and so forth. You know, these numbers are large. You know, I started 400. But it would follow through exactly for any lift, the clean and jerk and snatch. Or the deadlift. If like this would work for the deadlift, you know, a four fifty deadlift or a five fifty six, you know, even seven eights. Um, you know, uh, you follow the same procedure with this loading. You do the same amount. You could do the same amount of work and not overtrain. So a lot of people want to know about that. So that for as far as uh, speed day dynamic lifting, you know, where the bars at fairly fast velocity, you, you could do this very same thing and not overtrain and follow with this very same assistant exercises. I'd like to ask the million-dollar question that we get asked every day in the office between emails and phone calls. The percentage you use here, is this just for geared lifting or does it work for raw <laughs> or other sports? If map max is a funny thing. 80% of your one rep max is 80% of your one rep max. It doesn't matter if you wear gear no gear. It does not matter. You know, there's many, many guys. Years ago, what is called raw today um, I watched Larry Pacific on a pair of gym trunks and a weightlifting belt. There was no gear, total 1900 at 198 with 2-hour weigh-in. Um, I managed to do 655 at 180 pounds, 2-hour weigh-in, no gear. 
no wrist straps, no Zeke, you couldn't wear wrist straps. That was roll lifting two hours. Um, nowadays, you know, the roll lifters, they got 24 hours, they wear three meter knee wraps, they wear power bells. Um, you know, they select the greatest gear. It, it's funny, Raw basically has turned, is heading toward gear without them knowing it, because when a power belt came up, I was the first one to get one. And a, a better knee wrap come up, Larry Pacific was selling me one. And so anything come up, you always buy the best. You know, um, Shane Sweat said, uh, runs conjugate training sy system down in Cincinnati before Phelps said, if it's not an advantage, it's a disadvantage. And remember that, folks. But also, know the history of your own sport. But percents are percents. Thank you, Gordon. Yeah. So re just remember, even if, if you did a clean, you, a 200, 300, 400 clean, if you do the math the same way with accommodating resistance, it will come out the same. Um, I normally run waves for Olympic weightlifting, for all you people want to know. Um, when I run the waves, it would be this very same thing, 50, 55, 60, with 25% band tension. This is um, collected data off your top clean. If it's 300 pounds, you figure it out. All right? If you use, then on th three weeks, in the next three weeks, I'd use barbell weight. Now the barbell weight would go just like the stats said, 75, 80, and 85. I would normally do six triples in a snatch of one type or another and six in the clean. And that's how we did it. And we rotate every every three weeks of bands, of chain, of bands to real weight, bands to real weight, bands to real weight, and that's how we do it. Um, for your track and field athletes, I noticed you've, you rotate between different sled sprints too. Does that count in monitoring volume and intensity? <coughs> Spread, you mean for time? Yeah, when you go for a 10 meter to a 20 meter. Yes, we break everything, you know, everything in this world is time and space, correct? Okay. So, uh, I mean, I break down uh, running, I break down running the same way we do lifting. You know, if a person runs 100 meters, I'll make a power walk for maybe 12 seconds. You know, a couple seconds over, so try to eliminate deceleration in a 100 meter race. Um, you know, 200-meter race, I might make them go 25 seconds. Uh, a 400-meter race, maybe 60 seconds. Because the prime area, you know, you have three phases, the drive, the acceleration, and the maintenance. So the drive and the acceleration are built with a sled. But by using pretty much body weight on a sled, we have determined that you can produce greater force to the ground with a body weight amount of sled instead of a lightweight sled while power walking. And we've increased um, the distance in, six, in 60 seconds by as much as 80 uh, feet. So we've eliminated much of the acceleration races at length. And we've gone on and on and on, um, uh, completely up to having people walk two and a half miles of sleds that run half marathons and so forth. Um, Everything's based on mathematics. <laughs> How does max effort compare to dynamic? Uh, max effort is, um, should be done, max effort is the greatest method of strength training that is known to mankind. It uses the most muscle units and the f fastest firing frequencies. Unfortunately, very few people uh, can do max effort all the time. The Bulgarians did it to a point, but their max was based on the daily record, where West Side Barbell uh, came from the Soviet Union, and our maxes are break based on all-time records, where we might break 600 maxes in some type of, or a, a fashion in powerlifting in one year, like the Soviets did, the Bulgarians would break 4,000 because it's based on the one-day uh, max. they never based on all time. So, um, but the difference, so the max effort is the greatest method. That's why we had to uh, implant a dynamic method. I realized in, my, in the very beginning, we trained uh, very light because all powerlifters are very slow. That was a wrap on powerlifters. So we used a dynamic method to speed it up. No matter how strong you are, you had to be able to display it. So the, now, Tom, to answer your question on, on um, uh, the max effort uh, e e effort work, 
Like, you know, if you look at uh, when um, Don Conley uh, was here, Josh Conley, Josh he had a 1085, about 1,100 pound squat. So his workout was, um, you know, uh, very large in volume. It was around 12,600 pounds. So um, for squatting. Now, we had him deadlift. He deadlifted 805 standing on a two inch mat. And if I recall, he did, he did basically, it was a, a 405 and then five, like a 515 and then 605, 705, and 805 for a record. If you add that up, it's, it's almost barely 3,000 pounds. So you see it's about 25%. Now, you've heard the rule of, of 60 in weightlifting. Well, our rule is more like 50 to 50 because where weightlifters make small jumps, 10K, you know, maybe 5, 10K jumps. We make 20K jumps, and, we and you know, and uh, even more than that, you know, we jump, sometimes we'll go a set of hundreds, another set of hundreds, then 90, 90, 90, 90. So that's why our volume goes down. We try to achieve an all-time record as fast as possible with the lowest amount of volume. Um, and then that way, all we, oh, we're after one thing. And what is anyone after? A new PR. And our gym, by, by um, our stat person here, uh, the, the entire gym breaks a max effort record over 90% of the time, year in, year out. That's why this gym is so strong. So all, my, my goal is to get you a new record. I got you a new record. It don't matter if you do three reps with 500 in the, in the deadlift. Um, if your deadlift record is 510, I'd rather do 515 for one. It's a new record. Remember, it all starts in the brain, folks. You want new records. So we establish new records constantly. Then we go into the spatial exercises, which, again, makes up 80% of the training. Uh, I noticed that mm -hmm. roughly, give or take, after they warm up, and people here warm up with the weights, they don't do any stretch, they go straight into it. Right. That uh, on the seventh set, roughly, th that's about the optimal set for when they try to break a, a record. That's very convenient, Tom, because Primman talks about the optimal weights and weights up to 100% and seven is optimal. And you well know our circumax, we can get into this if you if you wish, but we do our circumax weights, normally two doubles and three singles. So why three singles? And why, do, and why do we do three singles in the gym? Funny how it was, but every meet I've been in, they managed to do three singles in every meet. That's what it calls for. It doesn't call for two doubles and this and that. You don't want to go five threes, twos. You want to go eights and sixes and fours. You wear yourself out, guys. Get in, get on. Your adrenaline's going anyhow to some extent, and excitability just by being in the gym with your friends. And you break a record quick, get it done, and then move on to what you really need. But, but you walk out of the gym for a record, what more do you want? And the guy told me once, I said, dude, break your record by five pounds. Kenny Pash and George Halper probably broke 20 world records in a bench. And they, 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 they would always hold up two and a half pound plates. And they go, this is the plan. They put it on, break the record by five, and, and, and they broke a record every time. And so I said, Louis, what the hell? What is five pounds? And I said, five pounds is 60 pounds in a year. That's what five pounds are. And you'll pay me for that. What I know it's a lot of, well, at the start, people get very greedy. They make big jumps. They don't ever save something in the tank. They don't leave anything for the next um, the next workout and that's a big but the more mature they get they start becoming more optimal than maximum that's why the plan is the five pounds yeah. you know and it gets as you go on and on and on everyone thinks the sky's the limit and all of a sudden they find out the sky's falling him in the head in a year or two training gets very very hard any sport the better you get the harder it gets to be better so you have to plan without a plan you plan to fail so remember, work up to a top single as fast as possible. And and by the way, Tom, uh, you know, you view all training here. Uh, and a lot of people ask me our monthly plan for for the lower body. We'll do the lower body first. It's pretty much 
They'll do one rack pull once a month, either with weights with uh, the plates two and a half, four and a half, or six inches off the ground, or with the plates off the ground like that and 250 or 350 pounds of band tension. Then they would do one pull off the floor. Uh, normally, they'll use 220 pound of band or 280 pound of band on regular base, or the plates are on a two inch mat or a four inch, or you are standing on a two or four. And the third or fourth workout, if you need to push the squat, it's going to be a very low box squat, a safety squat bar or something, and then maybe a front squat the next week, or it could be a good morning. So that is pretty much our, our rotation. To, uh, a rack pull, a pull off the ground, standing on something, and, um, and then a good morning and a squat. You can rotate it no more than two pulls, though, because uh, we speed pull every Friday after we do our speed squatting. Um, and this will regulate your training and keep progress going at a, at a steady rate. And this is where we found it seems to work best. We never, ever, ever do a regular deadlift off the ground like anyone else. Yet, no one can compete with us in top 10 or top 5. Uh, I noticed, I know it's one of the most riskiest and moves, and I say it loosely, but the good morning seems to transfer over into both deadlift and squat. And that seems to be one that our guys now are favoring more than, they might, they might even put two in a monthly workout, but... They do different uh, varieties of good mornings. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, good morning to me is to get, it can make a king or a queen out of you. It broke my back, but it made me strong as I ever was. And a, a fellow called Bruce Randall years ago, um, he was um, he was 400 pounds and he's doing, uh, he broke his leg severely. So he started pushing the power good morning up. And what he found out, if he, when he powered good morning 500, he could deadlift 500. Or he could squat 500 like a power stance. Then six and seven. He also could have broke Bob Peoples' deadlift record, but out of respect, he never did. Um, then he reduced down to one Mr. Universe, which is the craziest thing I've ever heard. But um, basically, the, the, the good morning is, is a, a, a large part of our training. We also have a good morning machine, but I primarily like to do regular good mornings. I like to go down eccentrically and come up concentrically because you stick your buttocks out and you arch your back. That's how you start a squat, and to do reverse, that's how you finish the squat. We do a lot of concentric good mornings, and again, working up singles from the very beginning work, work up do a couple reps do singles all the way up no no volume get a record and stop um oh, i want to bring up a point Tommy. <clears throat> you know we have some tremendous deadlifters here you know right now we've got jake norman uh, we took jake from 845 pretty much stuck <clears throat> in about 10 weeks to 900 at, at uh, under 300 pound body weight in a contest um we noticed one thing right away he has tremendous leg drive tremendous he's six foot seven tremendous leg drive so how could we possibly make his back do more work? Because he's only has Jake has only one body. We did this by making putting the plates on a four-inch mat. So we elevated the plates four inches. So then it was like a rack pull, but out on the platform. And so we eliminated his initial leg drive, placed all the emphasis in the back. And before this contest that he pulled nine, he could only pull 805 off with the plates four inches off the floor. This is key to him. Find out what is the hardest part of your lift, and that's what you need to train, break records there. It's better to break a record by 10 pounds on a special exercise that might give you 50 in the contest. Everybody goes, oh, I pulled 700 in a rack, but you can't pull six off the ground. So, you know, you, you got to be smart about what you're doing and, and plan. Um, I've noticed since I've been here that the higher the caliber of the athlete, the more training they do. And it's not the opposite. Before I got here, you think you get to the top, you can maintain, but... It seems the closer to the top they get, the higher and higher and higher the workload. Would I be correct in saying that? It's absolutely correct. Remember what I talked about by about Leonard Zasatinsky. It has to be done. And if you go back to our charts with a 400 squatter and, 
every 50 pounds you jump, you have to do 600 pounds more work. It's inedible. You have to do more work. You know, uh, Tommy used to fight. So when he was an amateur boxer, you fought three rounds. He was able to go three rounds. Then all of a sudden, you decide you're going to become a pro. You have to do more work to do a four-round, then a six, customary, then eight, then ten, championship 12. If you didn't do more work, you would never get to an eight or ten or championship fight. You have to do more work systematically. And uh, I'd imagine if you're a, when you're a novice and you start beginning, your body can only do some amount of work, but you must push. A, a lot of people that I see, they don't push out, but they give up because it gets hard at the start. But your body has to accommodate to it a little bit, and then your uh, tolerances uh, grow hugely. Exactly right. Again, if we go back to fighting, um, when you started, you had to gain endurance. You only could gain endurance to fight through fatigue. Same way with weights. If you do, if you, we have had people here, and they do a couple set of reverse hybrids, and barely couldn't train for a week. And we kept trying to tell them you had to do more and more. If they, they either break through to a higher plateau of volume and they go up, or they're finished. They just they're done. They go backwards. And Tommy, what happens when they leave here? They're like they're like old elephants. They go to the graveyard. <laughs> they're gone. For a lot of reasons. There's a lot of psychology in training. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this maybe in another podcast sometime. But training partners are utmost important. I, I started, I trained for six years by myself. The first thing I had was a just a, a basic power rack and a mirror and a radio. And I didn't, uh, I did great. I had the top total in the world for a few months. Uh, but what you need is training partners that push you and also are observant. You've got to do two things aggravate or motivate. Doesn't matter which one, but they got to do one or the other. I've, I've noticed with your style of coaching, uh, you always analyze the sport of the given athlete, and that's what you try uh, to put in the demands of the volume for that. So if you have a sprinter, you're not going to train like an endurance runner, and vice versa. And I think that's what a lot of people screw up on. They see one aspect of this training, and they try to they try, try to train someone like a powerlifter. It doesn't work. you got to analyze the sport that they're in and base it off that. And that's a big thing that, again, Charlie Francis, all these people did too. Yes, it's called exercise specificity. You have to understand what the athlete's needs are, then you have to attend to those needs. Exactly, Tom. It's very imperative that you do that. Um, what would you say to someone who does a lot of volume outside of training, and then they come in to you? Would you consider that into uh, strength training? Are we talking about sprinting? Just like sprinting, or just a, a, even with a fighter, if they... If you know they're going to be sparring something other nights, would you take that into consideration? Or? Somewhat in consideration, but as you, you train a lot of fighters. You probably train a half a dozen fighters. Mm -hmm. And these people are in shape. Everyone, you know, I, I first, uh, unfortunately, you know, um, Kevin Randleman died today, and he's a good friend of mine. And when I brought Kevin down here, I thought, oh, man, I can't hurt this guy, although they didn't call him a monster for nothing. And I realized you can't hurt the guy. Their work capacity is out of this world. These uh, all-American wrestlers can just do things and, Greco and you name it, everyone's got high work capacity. But you still have to pay attention to it. And then, um, uh, so, uh, no, I've never had a problem like that. And every we get this question in track all the time. And we try to tell them, like Charlie Francis, cut the freaking running out. There's many, many studies um, that talk about reducing running 30 to 35%, and then your running times invariably will get better. You know, um, one of the experts on the sprint, uh, from overseas basically said you could check, cut a chicken's head off and they can still run. So it's the very same thing. You had to put volume where you need it. Remember, that's how you bounce out an athlete and not get injuries. Too many track individuals have way too many lower extremity injuries. Injuries. So what do they do? They take the track people out and run them over and over and over. It makes no sense. I've known people that did 10 200 all outs. I've never seen a track meet that had 10 uh, heats. Never in my life. 
You know, why, why don't we do 10 max effort lifts? Why, we only do two or three because that's what we do in a contest. Again, exercise specificity. Um, <clears throat> I have a question uh, regarding about, uh, part of the training that you do with the track and field athletes or even fighters. Um, I see this guy uh, do a lot of jumping. Um, could you tell me uh, the volume of, uh, uh, of jumping during a week? How many jumps you do? Uh, yes, for the most people, I mean, if I bring in a super elite, I like to do 40 jumps twice a week. Now, Dr. Verfashansky recommended basically 40 jumps for advanced and around 24 for intermediate, doing depth jumps. I don't believe in depth jumps. I believe they're a little too dangerous. I would rather use to jump up. Um, be, I use momentum, calculated by momentum impulse theory. And uh, so I use 40 just like he does, but I use anchor weights, kettlebells, weight vests, combination of all three, and we constantly change them. And um, where we use... Um, even a long jump, we could do long jumps like this. Now, what I've never seen to overtrain, some people I've had to do 120 jumps, but they were super elite. Um, I got to jump. Jumps are very important. A lot of people talk about Olympic weightlifting, a lot of football teams. I don't go do Olympic weightlifting for ex to expose the power. It has nothing to do with explosive power. Um, what it has to do is expose power is training at 30 or 40%. I could do curls at 30 or 40%, and I'd have an explosive curl. That's what you want. Um, but jumping, the definition of explosive power actually is jumping. It's a manifestation of jumping. So, and the steeper increase in strength, the, the more explosive you are. So the faster you can t reach top strength, the more powerful you are and the higher you can jump. So that's, that's basically why we do the jumps, and, uh, and it keeps them in shape. Uh, many people ask me, when do you do the jumps? My friend Paul Childers, a 308 world record holder in squat and total for a long time. He did 40 jumps for warm-up for the squat. All right? You can do them after the squat. You can do them the day before. I've never seen an athlete, if his level of physical preparedness is high, has no trouble doing jumps. I mean, come on. If you can't do 40 jumps twice a week, you need to go check into the, you know, the Mayo Clinic or something. Thank you. And that's, that seems hopeful for all athletes, regardless of fighters. And, Tommy, you run into... Pretty much a phenomenon, huh? Fighters normally, normally can't jump. Yeah, they got the, one of the worst admiration phases I've ever seen. Right. It's 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 they can they move, and I've noticed that um, literally that they can jump longer rather than jump higher. <laughs> I've noticed that, and that's a that's a huge thing. But again, with correct training, it, I remember AJ right. he started here, <clears throat> could barely get a fifty, and he's what, made a 60, 61. And uh, TJ. What about TJ? TJ probably one of the biggest uh, uh, improvements I've ever seen. He started not probably here about a year, but uh, he he barely made a 38-inch box jump. And the other day in a pair of socks, walked up to, and this was after upper body workout, went up in a pair of socks and jumped in a 50. And that and that to me is one of the biggest improvements I've seen. Now I know Flavio, you put a note in front of me here and wanted to know how I could increase box jumping immediately. And you were here a few weeks ago, and they brought a high school standout that ran a 4.35, clocked at Ohio State, and he's going to go to Indiana. And he had a 47-inch box jump. And so we brought him in and ran through some phases. I put him in a bell squat machine. This is how valuable this could be. Put him in a bell squat machine. We took him out, and he jumped 15 and a half inches. And his coach, and this was within 45 minutes, his coach called me on the phone and asked me how I did it. Contrast training. Training has very many aspects. You have to learn. If you want to be a coach, coaches out there, read books. I've read hundreds of books. I've read some books a hundred times. And uh, it's not that I'm that slow. I'm pretty slow. But there's a lot of information in the book. you got to keep reading it. So 
Um, just pay attention to reading, learn the stuff, and don't be afraid to experiment, and don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. You know, you could. I like to take two different type of people, the very best and see if it works, and the very worst and see if it works. If it does, it works for the people in the middle. And I, I like the thing that you said too, when you before you wrote an article, you you did everything, like you, you tried everything and be, for six years. Yeah, and, um, everybody. Thank you, Tom. I think that's a big thing now. People are getting out. They're putting out a lot of information when they got no foundation of what they're doing. I never got paid for articles. I did articles for help people because I knew I needed help. And I read articles and I thought they were so pathetic that I thought, you know, I think I know a little something. I mean, out of my garage, there was six of us winning the national championship in 1980. Um, so I thought maybe I need to start writing articles to save all these people the same blows that I was going through. So uh, absolutely right. And uh, when change came out, I, I started using change. I used change. Uh, Dave Tate and, and Chuck Vogelpohl and, and Joe Amata and a lot of guys, super strong guys here. We used change for three meets. That acquired... 18 months of training. Then I wrote about change because I found out, yes, they were fast. Under no doubt, they worked. And then uh, Dick Hartzell's jump stretch bands. Um, Dave Williams asked me to do tests with these bands. I never even heard of them. I wanted bands oh, throughout the years. Medvedev talked about in 1967. But I never heard of a band that we could put on a squat bar and squat 800 pounds. But uh, then I found these bands. He showed me, I, and I used these bands again. Three meets, one and a half years, and then I wrote about the results. And they're positive. Anyone that sits there and says accommodating resistance doesn't work, you should just turn your coaching status in and get the hell out of Dodge because it works. It's science, guys. It's physics. You know, when people ask me, Tommy, what's the first book I tell people to buy? Basic physics book. That's right. You know, funny, Mr. Newton was no dummy. No. <laughs> so. I think that's, that's it. it. You got any more questions, Flavio? I know Flavio's over here from Italy. Um, Rugby player. That's, um, the, I, I want to bring up a couple points, though, about lower body training. Um, we basically do the same thing. We try to get around 24 lifts on speed day. Um, years ago, we used very light weights. Uh, I was very, very slow back in the early 80s, and we all were. Nowadays, I think you could actually use the weight because uh, uh, Travis Bell would use 50, 55, and 60 three-week wave. Or he would go mini band, monster band, and a monster band that couples at a chain. He constantly changed the rate of bar speed. You know, the, uh, again, why do you use the combination resistance? There is no possible way you have a correct weight in the bottom of a lift and at the top. If you can move it out of the bottom fast, it's too fast at the top. If it's too heavy in the bottom, you can't start out of the bottom. So that's why you, may, you have to use combinations of bands and chains to accommodate resistance, exactly what the word says. Louis, can you explain to people why... But compare benching versus squatting and dynamic effort. A lot of people seem to think you got to do 50, 55, and 60 for benching and squatting. But can you explain why we stick with one percentage for benching and then squatting we use 50, 55, and 60? We normally do stick to one percent, just change the combination because we don't wear gear. When we squat, we use briefs for the most part. We do. You know, we're, yeah. we're gear lifters and we use the briefs. So uh, your upper body, um, you know, is, is a lot more uh, small muscles and you take a bit greater chance of getting hurt. I imagine changing the grips too would affect. Right, we change where we only use one grip in the squat. Tom, you're correct. We use uh, three grips in the bench at least. Uh, Bill Cino told me very specifically oh, years ago. Said, "Look, if you ever build your triceps, if you don't get a bench, you'll never win a national championship." This is back in the early 1970s. So I go back and work my arms, and I'd work for a while. My bench would go backwards because they were so far out of shape. Like a lot of people, I said, "Larry's Larry's messing with me." And then my next beat, I would like you know raise up and get my big five pound PR. 
And then I went to meet one time in Indiana, and Bill Cena was there, and Bill had won six best chess awards when they had such a thing. And this was a monster of a man. I weighed 170. And I said, Mr. Cena, can you help me? And he glares at me and grabs me. I think he's going to beat the crap out of me. And he goes, you got to bench illegal. And he goes, go out outside the rings. Says, bench six max, six rep max. And if you can't get a new record, go to eight rep max. And you can't get rid of the 10, then go back to six. Well, I hated the eights and the tens, but I started doing the sixes and and an ultra-wide grip. And I also started doing all the, the tries that Larry told me. And it took my raw bench from 340 to 515. Um, now, in my gym right now, I have a guy called uh, Wesley Cormick. And so far, we put... 65 pounds on his bench in about seven months by doing the very same thing. Um, how do we keep from um, overtraining the bench? Well, uh, basically, uh, I use uh, East German shot put method, believe it or not. Uta Byer and a lot of people over there are tremendous. Uta uh, touch and go 727. All right. There was a guy from um, um, Italy that actually supposedly touch and go 804, 365K. Shot putter, sloppy bench, but who cares? And what they would do, uh, they would do where uh, we do the full amount, 24 lifts. They did optimal, six triples. They did 18 lifts. Um, and and uh, so uh, that's where I got this from. What else they did, and this makes a lot of sense, and no one ever does it because, unfortunately, I would bench church. You see a lot of guys that don't have a muscle on them. They can bench 700 pounds. That doesn't do you or my, Tom, or you, Flavio, because we work, we deal more sport than we do powerlifting. And so we had to make people ass kicking strong. So we do normally a three or four sets of dumbbells of a moderate weight for maybe 20 reps. Something you, you could grab up cold and do 20. If you, Tommy, if you could grab hundreds and do four sets of 20 cold, that's what you use. If five, you can only do six, that's what you use. But make sure you got a couple reps in you. Then when you do that, then you move into triceps. Um, and then your, your upper back, shoulders, and delts, and lats. And what the four sets does, it seems to monitor all muscle groups and keeps you from overtraining any one group. Now... My friend um, Sakari overseas, there was no 700-pound benchers in Europe. Sakari spent a lot of time with me. 148 out of 363 bench, came here, spent about six months, went back bench at 435 and won world championships in the IPF. And he got people to do this, and now look at Europe. They've got a lot of big benchers, and this is basically one of the ways they did it. So that's how I monitor training for benching without overtraining people. I love push-ups. Yeah, it sounds old, folks. Push-ups made me stronger than anything I've ever done. Um, you got to realize something. When something becomes heavier than you, it's better to push yourself away from it than than it away from you. If Tommy pushes me up against the wall, um, I, Tommy's bigger than me, but I can push Tommy off because he got the wall against me. But out in the middle of the floor, I can't move Tommy because he outweighs me. So always take the con the concept of pushing yourself away from the bar. If you do, then you activate your back muscles. Lots of guys got huge lats, but they don't even use them. So uh, this activates all back muscles. And it gives a better concept of, you know, you drive yourself through the bench and launches the bar up the platform. What happens when the rocket ship goes off? The force goes into the ground right. to propel it upward. Uh, I noticed a big training cue you do is you put a, a barbell on the bottom of a power rack and you make them do push-ups off that barbell. And that teaches them to push themselves away. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and then you work up or you make them put weight and put people up. Heavy weight and heavy people, yes. Yep. Try it, guys. Uh, we got more questions on that. Uh, um, I have one more question. So, um. uh, one more thing before you jump in. Uh, before um, You remember you talked about the band curls. We do two and 300 band extensions a week. We do not have elbow problems. All I can't do extensions because my elbows hurt. And I heard this from uh, um, 
AJ, AJ Roberts. AJ had a barrel over 700-pound bench. I said, AJ, your elbows are weak. He says, how can you say that? I said, they're weak. So finally, after arguing with me for about a year, and he bench, his bench went up like 10 pounds from 7 <coughs> to 7 and a quarter, um, I got him to extensions. And then the next year and a half, he, bent, he benched 910. And he said, my elbows were weak. Build up the ligaments and tendons. Flav, you're the very same thing. You've always had a lot of elbow problems. You came here. We got you to do a high reps, and now you can jump in. And no elbow problems at all. You can't have aches and pains. That's going to bring inhibitions. You'd never be able to lift or perform properly in your sport. A lot of people mistake weakness and pain. That's a big thing because your arms are weak. It hurts to go through, but that's not pain. That's weakness. <clears throat> Tom, many people are afraid to bend over because it's all hurt my back. Well, why do migrant workers bend over a thousand times, picks up beans, rice, apple, whatever the hell they pick up, and they don't have bad backs because they do ultra-high repetitions, and that's exactly what we do here. Um, to do nothing is worthless. Mashashi said that in battle. Um, Louis, I have a question. Um, leading to a meet, how do you change um, volume and intensity? I know you, um, a lot of track and field athletes, you know, because they compete um, once, they have, you know, they follow um, once or twice a year, uh, the load period, because they have main uh, events. Um, how do your guys uh, train leading to a meet? Um, very interesting, because this is a tremendous controversy in Europe. And um, when I was training around 2000, making big lifts, I was fourth in the world. Chuck Vogelpohl was killing everybody, and we had these monster guys. But for some reason, the, all the, the three lift lifters, we were about 100 pounds off our best lifts combined in the contest. And I'm going, I don't, I've never seen Vogelpohl choke. I, I wasn't choking. We were messing up. How were we messing up? Why was our squat constantly going up? And uh, back then, we did three weeks of circa max squatting. So our squats constantly went up. Um, at my last venture from... 48 years old to 50 years old, I squatted. I made 16 squats in a row, never got one turned down, never did a hard one, and I was tied for second in the world when I was 50, 920 pounds. Um, so I said, what the hell's going on? Why aren't we strong on contest day where we need to? So I, I did research. I looked at Ver Fashansky from track and field. He used a 21-day um, a uh, delayed transformation phase. Um, Medvedev did the same in weightlifting, and uh, the Bulgarian coach, uh, besides Angel Spazov, did the very same thing. They had this huge controversy who came up with it. Well, I didn't care, but it must work. But what I do, I basically use a double delayed transformation phase, not to accuse anyone. 28 days out, this is one week before we take our biggest box squat. And there, we wear gear, but no straps, of course, or no um, knee wraps. 21 days out, we train about 50%. So it's a very moderate intensity. We do our normal spatial uh, barbell exercise, reverse hypers, bell squat, and all this. 21 days out is the key. We had to break a record, and as you well witnessed, they all broke their records like they do all the time. 21 days out to get an all-time box record. At that point, we take set, roughly 75%, don't, don't go crazy with math, 75%, like A.J. Roberts did 740 and 440 a band. The next week he did 510 and 440 a band. The next week he would just do small exercises. That would be seven days out, and the contest, he squatted 1210. Uh, this works. This is delayed transformation. Um, and so you want to work like this and because it doesn't matter how strong you are two weeks before. It doesn't matter how weak you are two weeks after. You have to be strong on me day. This has been the most positive influence of periodization training that I've had in my gym since the original permanence uh, process of using percents and numbers of lifts. And that's very similar to, to uh, track and field. It, it's exactly track and field. So, yeah. 
Um, and I noticed you get your guys never to stop doing anything. That even on their uh, their week tapering into it, they're always doing small exercises. You notice Ch Charlie Francis talking about uh, made a, a reverse um, uh, hypothesis or whatever about swimming and track. Mm -hmm. Because when he would have uh, Ben Johnson run, he would make him max out in the bench because the bench doesn't use, the upper body doesn't use the most muscles in sprinting. So he had to max out in the bench 10 days out. And the swimmer had him do the lower body 10, 10 days out. It's ironic that what is the last lift we do um, without a gear is 10 days out floor press. 10 days out. It's exactly the same. How did we all come up with this and, you know, in the water, on the track, and in the gym? How do we? Because it works. This is proven. It's proven, folks. You're not going to outsmart those guys, you know. I realized I couldn't outsmart these Russians. I started doing it, and uh, and I, I started following Primus chart, and I realized when I finally got the grasp of it, it worked. Then another chart, then another. And I said, well, well, why am I working my way toward what they're saying? Why not do what the hell they're saying? They've done this with the greatest athletes in the world and the greatest scientists. And so I started doing that. I got a lot of timing training, to, uh, you know, experimentation where I was failing and started making lots of success and for all of our guys. Uh, any more questions? Um, Louis. I see a lot of people, a lot of athletes screwing up with volumes and intensity, especially leading to a meet. In your experience, uh, what do you think if an athlete doesn't follow his guidelines, what would happen to him? Overtrain or overtrain. He's going to overtrain or he's going to detrain. Too many, you know, and a lot of athletes overtrain. You've seen it in my gym. You, you know, a lot of people say, Louis, why do you think you know so much? Because I, I've seen so much bad in my gym. We all see it. We watch failures in my gym repeatedly am i right you know not a lot but some um, they just don't seem to be able to get it through their head there's a process to follow and um if you follow this procedure you go to the contest and you break your records every tommy the last three meets we must have broke in the in when uh, probably 12 lifters uh, 36 records or more at least uh, per, personal records contest so that's proof of the pudding and two nine over two nine hundred deadlifters that's right one, one meet Yes, yeah. We've done that more than once. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, that's it. I'd like to thank Louis. I'd like to thank Flavio. Lou, maybe next time, uh, our next podcast, we can touch on uh, the importance of training partners. I would like to do that, Tom. And also, um, you know, like, uh, thanks to you and Flav, you, you show me a lot of stuff. And if people watch what Dan Path does and some of these swimming experts in the track and field and uh, Ver Fashansky, you're going to see and Duco over in Russia, you're going to see that, you know, the whole world had evolution of some type. How do we all arrive at the same place eventually through all the continents? Training is very the same way. We've all discovered the same thing, you know, fairly at the same time. And this is proven methods. If you just use them, you're going to save yourself a lot of grief. Thank you. This is Westside Barbell with strength and conditioning legend, Louis Simmons. WestsideBarbell.com, the strongest website in the world.